Hello and welcome to the Happy Baby Podcast. In today's episode, Frank is talking to Jess Kennedy from My OT and Me. Jess is a multi-award winning senior pediatric occupational therapist whose research has been published in the Huffington Post and the Journal of Occupational Science. She has worked in a range of paediatric clinics in both Ireland and Australia. Innovative and creative intervention is at the core of Jess's practice, ensuring that parents feel supported and children reach their potential. In today's episode, Frank and Jess discuss how OT can help children with sensory processing issues, meltdowns and behaviour issues, the importance of messy play and pretend play, and so much more. Jess also explains how her new online platform Gabadoo works and how it can help parents. OT has so many benefits for all children, and I'm sure most parents will have something to take away from this episode. Remember to give us a like and do share the episode with family and friends who you think would be interested. The Happy Baby podcast is part of the Happy Baby Life experience. It also includes online courses and a Facebook community. The purpose of the Happy Baby Life is to offer support and information to parents of newborn babies and young children. Follow us on Instagram for regular updates. So, let's get started. So I'm delighted to welcome Jess Kennedy today to um, the Happy Baby podcast. Jess is an OT, so I wanted to talk to Jess about all things that occupational therapists do, and particularly the broad range of things that that Jess does on a day-to-day basis. So you're very welcome, Jess, to the podcast, (laughs) and thanks for coming over to to meet with us today. So very simply, what is an OT, and more specifically, what's a paediatric occupational therapist? So... Obviously, occupational therapists work throughout the lifespan. So as you said, paediatrics is technically a specialism in that after I graduated, I could have gone into any of the areas, but I wanted to be in peds. Some occupational therapists would kind of see themselves as a occupational therapist, not paediatrics, but because technically for some of my clients, they're 24, 25 years of age now, and they'll always be my clients. So it's kind of an interesting profession from that perspective. What we work in is any area that's specific to an individual around doing. So we help support people to be able to do what they want, to support their health, to support their well-being, to make them feel more confident and independent. And so it's very individual. So for that, for a child, it could be that they want to be able to play with their peers or they want to be able to concentrate in school. They might want to be able to cope in different environments so that they can go to a birthday party or that they can, you know, play with their siblings. And so as that gets older, obviously, if OT is working in mental health, supporting people to be able to do what they want to do and support their mental well-being. Yes. I mean, neurological, you've got people working with adults, with elderly. Um, so we're really kind of across the lifespan. Some OTs work in palliative care because it's all about that meaningful engagement in what you do day to day. So when we talk about occupation, it's actually a meaningful activity to somebody. And so obviously within pediatrics, that's play. So sometimes we look like we're playing, but we build all of our clinical reasoning through play to engage the child, to motivate them so that they want to engage. But like you said, my work can be very diverse. I have babies, but I also have young adults. And a lot of the work I do there can be supporting their mental health, helping them to discover their true identity, to be able to self-advocate, to be able to access, you know, university and get the supports they need. So it's all really at the essence is doing, but it's very diverse as a result. It is. It's, it's huge yeah. diversity there, yeah. isn't it? But that's that's great because you have that in your job every day, mm. which is great. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's very individual and diverse. Like. So let's break it down a little bit more. And there are terms that are used by occupational therapists, mm. things like fine motor skills, and mm-hmm. how do they differ with the age of the child? Give us a little bit of a... Yeah. So fine motor skills, like motor skills is what a lot of parents first hear. They're like, I need to reach developmental motor skills or milestones can be what they hear. Every child is really on their own developmental path. Milestones are a great marker for us. But what happens is a lot of those milestones are gross motor. So gross motor is your kind of your crawling. It's your bigger, larger muscle groups. Fine motor is your more intricate movements to do with your hands. So it could be the muscles of the hands and the fingers to be able to do tasks throughout the day. So 
you know, really fine motor skills, there's also a developmental path around that that's very important because fine motor skills form the basis of being able to finger feed when you have a baby or a smallie, to be able to hold a spoon, to be able to manipulate toys, like to be able to hold blocks, put blocks together, stack cups. Um, And as kids get older, then obviously when they hit preschool, suddenly there's this huge flood of what's expected from a fine motor perspective. They need to be able to dress themselves, put on their shoes, zip up their jacket. You're expecting them to be able to open their lunchbox, to be able to manipulate packets. And then like the play skills that come from preschool, we always call that that pre-writing stage. You're talking about scissor skills and building with their two hands together, being able to scribble and mark make. And so as kids finish preschool, you're really expecting that some of those fine motor skills are quite consolidated for them then to be able to manipulate a pencil to do quite a complex fine motor skill, which is handwriting. Um, But it doesn't stop there. I mean, as kids get older, sometimes it's importance isn't as seen as much but it's important for everyday skills so like if you're going to be a chef or if you want to bake you need to have really good fine motor skills you need to be able to do more complex dressing skills as you get older like smaller buttons or a tie doing makeup as a girl for a guy being able to shave so there's a there's a lot to fine motor skills and I think sometimes we think only about handwriting our families only think about handwriting with fine motor skills but there's just so much else um, with it yeah that's quite a a huge range Mm. of things and you mentioned handwriting there and visual motor skills a little I'd imagine these are very important as you said for a child starting school yeah very important and I think what's even more important is to remember that there is a developmental approach let's say to handwriting in that it's not about exposing your child really early because if you expose your child too early to something like letter formations, you know, so I'm going to teach them how to write their name before they go to school. That's fine for a child who's ready for that, but you have to be thinking about all of the stages before that. So it is developmentally appropriate for a child to swap hands at a certain time. It's um, developmentally appropriate for them to hold a pencil in a full grasp rather than in this tripod grass that everyone talks about. The tripod grass arrives around four, five, you know, years of age, which is junior infants. So if you're trying to skip those stages and you're trying to get a child to write their name and do the alphabet, sometimes you miss some of those key underlying skills that will be important for them to actually progress with their writing. So things like bilateral integration of their two hands, being able to cut with a scissors, being able to hold a page and mark make, so that I can naturally develop my dominant hand. But also pre-writing and visual motor, as you mentioned, is I can see something and make a plan. So that's why I'm always like, do they have their pre-writing shapes? Can they copy a circle? Can they copy a vertical or a horizontal line? Can they copy a square? These are the more important stages than they can write their name because you're teaching the process of imitation and copying, which forms the basis of handwriting, obviously, because watch me, I'm doing an A around legacy, up, down. I need to know how to hear that plan and make that plan. Um, and so that's quite a diverse skill that can be practiced in lots of ways. And drawing is a great way of doing that. Right. So step-by-step drawing or learning how to draw a person. Oftentimes I'll use those pre-writing shapes and be like, look, I'm drawing a house. I draw a square and a triangle on top or I use a circle to draw a face. It's okay to teach children how to draw as well. So you let them do their free drawing and then you give them a few little pointers. That's modeling. Okay. And that's a great way of teaching kind of skills to kids. I suppose I had a question based on that really because I, I read something online recently that how half of parents prefer not to do painting or baking mm. or anything and that involves sort of messy play with children. And what's your opinion about messy play and how important it is? I was fascinated that yeah. that statistic, yeah. That is the case not only for like messy play but like messy food play. You know, being able to touch my food before I eat it. And lots of parents are like, absolutely not. I give them the spoon. There's no mess. You know, my life is busy. And I absolutely understand that from parents' perspectives. You have children throwing things. It's all about the prep for this. You can't decide, oh, I'm going to do it. And there's right beside your new curtains. Or like (laughs) you have them on a carpet. You really need to think about how could I make this manageable for me? Because also for some parents, they veer away from it because they have their own sensory preferences. And part of that could be that messy feel, a messy environment makes them feel anxious. 
So maybe they're not the right person to deal with the child. That's okay. It could be a sibling. It could be dad. If you're a mom, it could be, you know, a grandparent might be better suited to do this kind of play because they'll be relaxed. And so your child will enjoy it more. One thing I would say, though, is um, a child's hands are basically their external mouth. So if you're trying to get a child to learn how to finger feed, to explore new foods, um, it's really helpful for what you're feeding your child to have a little bit on the table in front of them so that they can touch it, that they can familiarize themselves with how it feels when I break it up in my hands or rather than it going straight into their mouth. So obviously you can be doing spoon feeding while they also get to touch a little bit of it. It doesn't have to be crazy messy play. Also get a plastic sheeting and put it under them in the high chair. Put them on tiles, put them somewhere that the mess isn't as great. Clean it up, you can wash it later. You know, put down old newspaper, let them throw it. Don't get too caught up. It's about the process. And for some parents, like, I just need to get them fed now and out. And they get they get stuck in that checklist with smallies, whereas actually it's about the process of learning. So food is also a process where there's co-regulation, where I'm giving you feedback and there's a little dance. And I'm telling you what you're eating. Oh, that's smooth or that was tricky for you. or And that co-regulation helps a child feel safe within the feeding experience. And that's the same with messy play. So if children put things in their mouth and you're like, don't put that in your mouth, put that down. Obviously, your anxiety is also going to trigger that child to think, oh, that was a threat. You know, it's dangerous. So make sure you pick something that's suited to you and your child. Water play is a great start. Have started in the summer months sand outside, mud, you could have slime, you could do it with food out the back, like if your child puts things in their mouth, blend up digestive biscuits and let them play with it, or you could use like cocoa powder, and if you use it with like cornflour, it makes a lovely gloopy mix, they can eat that, so it's all about the prep, that's what I would say when it comes to messy play. Baking, I mean, don't try and put yourself under pressure after work to go baking with your child, like allocate when they're on midterm or at the weekend, maybe on a Sunday you could do it with them. But if this isn't something you enjoy as a parent, maybe it's it's good to find something that you both enjoy together in terms yeah, of that's that very good advice. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. very very good. Talk to me a little bit about, I suppose, sensory processing. So, so I would see some kiddies who come into my clinic, and during the case history, mom would mention some aspects of sensory processing to me that I would sort of detect, and then refer them obviously to somebody like yourself, Jess. Tell me a little bit about sensory processing and I suppose how would a parent know if their child has some difficulties Mm. in these areas? So there's so much in sensory processing, but it's also really important to like normalize this in that we all have a sensory system, you know, and we all have the same sensory systems. How we process information that we take in, yes, we can have differences and preferences within that. Like, for instance, you might like certain foods that I don't like. Maybe you like music loud when that triggers me. It could be times that I prefer, you know, softly see blankets and somebody else might hate the feel of that. So we all have our own sensory preferences and differences. If we are stressed, our threshold can be lower for certain sensory systems. So for instance, if I'm stressed, I get into the car. If there's loud music, that can really trigger me. That's the same for children as well. So if they're stressed, sometimes their sensory needs can become heightened as well. So that's important to notice that a child's sensory system isn't static, that it changes. And so a parent might go, but that wasn't an issue before, but it is an issue in school, or they seem to be able to tolerate one minute and then they can't the next. But that's because our emotional state is also shifting and that impacts on our sensory systems. So when it comes to sensory differences that need intervention, That would be when it's impacting on a child's everyday functioning, their ability to be happy every day, to cope in different environments, to be able to participate and to be able to interact in what they want to be able to do. So it doesn't exactly need intervention if you've seen some sensory differences, but you found allowances at home or you found ways around it, like they hate tags or underwear. So you found seamless and now they seem okay with it. They can go to school 
it's only really when parents say, you know, they find it really hard to go to certain environments so we can't really go as a family or in school they're highly distractible and are missing lots of instructions so they're falling back on their schoolwork or they're quite stressed on the yard because they're finding it hard to cope in this environment. So really what you're looking for is how something is impacting on your child. So rather than get too stuck on the behaviour of it, is think about how is this behaviour impacting on my child. So for instance, you know, um, a lot of parents will see stimming or self-stimulatory behaviours, which lots of autistic um, individuals can now tell us that, you know, that's really important from their perspective, as I am really shares that in terms of it being self-regulatory and the need for it. And so that's where I suppose that education piece is so helpful for parents so that they can distinguish what's self-regulatory for a child and what's something that maybe needs support so that they can participate to the best of their ability. Okay, so when you would work with a, a child, so you would give parents a lot of practical ideas and things. Absolutely, and also the parents are the experts. They come to us going, this is what I've seen, this is what I've seen. And that's really important because you're never going to see those things in an initial assessment with a child. It's only really after I've developed a relationship with a family and a child that I see these things. We're talking to school, talking to parents and figuring out, like, how do they cope in this environment? What impacts them, you know, when they're at home or in the evening? Like for some children, they can really hold it together all day in school. And then they come home and parents say they have meltdowns. They've got no tolerance for any kind of sensory input. They're totally overwhelmed. But that's like the Coke bottle effect. They're being shaken all day and then suddenly the lid comes off and they come home. We see that a lot. And that's, you know, children that are masking in school and then, Obviously, they're back in a safe environment, a home environment, and their threshold is gone. So yes. it's, it's complex. And I think that's where it's really important is that parents have that consistency, that it's a continuous flow of try this, come back to me, observe this, see what works, because you're really trying to figure out what works for that child and that family and that individual. It's not going to be yes. generalized. You're not going to give them a generalized list of things. Yes, a generalized list may help parents to say that sounds like my child you know like we might sometimes give a sensory profile questionnaire where they can but at the end of the day when it comes to actual things that work you really need to kind of go through that trialing process okay because just taking up on that 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 previous point you made about safe environment so as you said they're able to hold it together all day in the school that's said to me quite a lot Mm. when parents bring their kids in to see us where the behavior changes when they come home into their safe environment. When you see children then with behavioural issues, very often it's centred around meltdowns, mm. okay? So as you said, they come home. I would very often see these kids and treat their nervous system and their breathing system to, to help regulate their emotions. Mm. When you work on the neurological pathways, it really does tend to get them to breathe better, which has a calming effect on their on the regulation. And I suppose... What sort of advice would you give to parents around, I suppose, managing meltdowns? Mm. And you mentioned that it may occur in certain environments mm-hmm. and not in others, because the parents will say to me, oh, they're great in school. The yeah. teachers have no issue. Mm. But when they do come home, this can happen. Mm. And so, like, one thing you touched on there, Frank, around that deep breathing is mm. something that we always use in kind of regulation work as well as that diaphragm, you know, but... Yes getting that diaphragm going and support so this is really like a whole child approach you know, there's so much to it but so with meltdowns the very first thing is with any behavior or with any I suppose emotions that are coming up or if you're being curious it's really important to be curious not only as a, a professional but for parents as well to rather than getting stuck on how do we stop this behavior or how is to think why, like why is this happening? Like behaviors have a function. And so you really need to deep dive into what is happening here for my child? Why is this happening? And so it could be that you need to look at that whole day. And that's where that collaborative relationship with school is really important because an open relationship school might not have those concerns in school, but yet maybe interventions need to be put in place in school because it could still be an environment that a child is finding stressful, but they may not be showing that. And so they may love the structure of school, absolutely adore going to school, but it could be the demands of being in school even just. And 
and coping with those demands throughout the day and the tiredness that comes with school might be challenging them as well and so it's then exploring what will work best for this child how do we maximize on this child's strengths so they are able to hold it together so maybe we should give them a brain break in school where they literally just have time to decompress from the day see does that have a knock-on effect then when they go home so that's something we'd often introduce um, for kids will be you know a, a breaks during the day just to decompress you know so there's no questioning no demands maybe they get to doodle or do something that is self-directed um, and it's just low demand and so that can have a knock-on effect then in the evening with meltdowns it takes a lot of curiosity and thinking to help support that child because in a meltdown state oftentimes children are in a stress response you know so it's not a learning moment it is a moment to hold space and be present you know and to also there's so much co-regulation needed in that moment you are that trusted parent for them and so it's really just allowing them that time so having them safe you know making sure you're safe and then you know just saying I'm here need me maybe they need a cuddle but you're not trying to teach a learning moment you're connecting with that emotional side of their brains you're not trying to pull their logical side in because this isn't the moment for it so what I would say is with meltdowns is you're using that co-regulation which parents are so wonderful at and I think it's afterwards you can reflect on it yourself and think were there triggers that or maybe was it slow triggers and slow triggers could be things throughout the day that have just mounted to a meltdown in the evening um, and so even some of like the teenagers that I work with, they'll tell me that their meltdown is just they come home and they're just distraught and they can't stop crying. And it can be the overwhelm of stress from school. So it might be something that happened in school, but it's just that feeling of looming demands and what they need to get done. And emotionally, they're not able to cope potentially with that. So I think with meltdowns, it really does take. A little bit of thinking of how could we co-regulate more for this child? How can we support this child more? Because obviously they're finding something stressful um, throughout the day. Self-regulation is my ability to manage my emotions and my behaviour well enough so I can cope with tasks, problem-solving demands. Like it's so complex. Like people don't learn how to self-regulate fully till they're like thirty. You know, you're an adult. I still co-regulate with my mom for sure, like calling her, chatting with her. So if you think then about, you know, a child or teenager that has sensory differences or who may see the world a little bit different and so needs that extra little bit of co-regulation, that's okay. We're not here to push children into independence when they're not developmentally ready. It's human nature to want co-regulation to connection seek with others and so that's why I often talk to schools and SNAs I do a lot of training like that talking about it's okay to be present and to remember that you know this is a person this child it's okay to validate their experience and support them and say I know this is hard for you or for a parent saying no this homework is boring and it's hard and let's do it together and we get through it quickly you know that emotional response sometimes I think when people are stressed and they think this is my slot to bring you on a break or they forget the reality of actually the relationship and connection which underpins everything and it's just so important to be present. I suppose we we've we have to talk about screens mm. obviously and how much they can affect a child. So <clears throat> I suppose our four children were lucky enough to have grown up before screens were used, mm. believe it or not. Mm. Um there were no mobile phones. I know. Um, there were no iPads. They watched some TV, um, but they had very little screen time. Mm-hmm. So they just played with their toys and holidays were outdoor stuff, the stuff mm-hmm. that we did with them. So what's your opinion on screens? Because we live in a very modern world. Now, yeah, somewhere. I know it's a tricky one, I think, for sure, because like I do like a lot of work on screens as well and I'd be on my phone so I think the very first thing is for not to be setting unrealistic expectations on your kids around screens if you're someone who's constantly on a laptop and you know a phone as well as a parent can be really helpful to model that like anything you know so dinner time we're all putting them away you know so even like for a teenager it's not really fair to put your phone away but I'll text at the dinner table and oh it's because it's work Because to a teenager, their main priority is social interaction. So I think you really want to model that, you know, so that's really important. So if it is that screens are put away for family movie time when you're watching I'm a Celeb, 
that stands to everyone. And I think that's a fairness that can work really well, especially with kind of teenagers and young adults. Okay. For younger kids, it's very tricky. Like technically for under two-year-olds, screens are not recommended. Um, and then after that, really you're looking at minimizing that time on screens as much as possible. This is very tricky, though, as we move into an age of using AAC devices for communication for children. And um, some children are really learning language through watching shows. They're watching it through, you know, watching videos, whereas they may not have learned it, learned it in traditional means of social communication. So I think it's it's all about finding the right balance, particularly for children who maybe need more support around their play skills. Because when you introduce a screen, especially something like YouTube, this is one of the things that comes up a lot, that children will be flicking between YouTube. Our screens change every millisecond. So you can't you can't say that my child is on a screen for this amount of time, so their attention is really good because it's constantly changing. So it's not sustained attention. It's not I'm working on a puzzle and I'm going to keep at it until I have it. It's this is highly motivating and it's constantly changing. So it's really keeping me in the loop here. I want to be on this. It's very addictive. So if your child is prone to being obsessional about being on technology or finds it really hard to find that balance, boundaries are really important around screen time because what can happen, it can become that primary play Whereas other play then isn't as motivating, obviously, because when you're bored, it's probably one of the most important times as a child, because when you're bored, you have to use your own imagination. Yes. So you suddenly have to be like, well, this toy could do this or this game. Whereas if you are given a screen before you have the opportunity to be bored, suddenly there's this highly motivating thing in front of you. You are flicking things, you're watching things, you're not using any energy, you can chill out on the couch. It becomes less motivating to transition off that. So one thing that I suppose I have found that I find frustrating is when a screen is given even before a child has an opportunity to participate or be bored. So they sit down at the table, they're given a screen straight away because they could kick off or because there could be a problem. So it's used as a preventative measure, which is is quite difficult to watch because you really want to give a child an opportunity to be present and maybe listen into the adult conversation and, you know, maybe colour and then have their dinner with you in a restaurant. Whereas obviously a child's going to kick off and be like, give me your phone, give me your phone. If that's what their routine is when they're in that, absolutely. And I know parents are saying, I have to give it a can. Some parents have tried and the child can't cope in that environment. And then they're given the phone or an iPad because that's the only way they can enjoy a family meal. That's different. I'm talking about when children haven't been given the opportunity. A screen has been put in front of them. Sometimes I'll see kids being pushed around in buggies and they could be looking out about, but they have a screen in front of them. So they're not being present in our world as well. And being out in nature, exploring that, being present and just being bored is really important to the developing brain. So I think we just need to be a little bit more conscious as a generation, me included. I'm constantly on the phone, constantly on, you know, um, technology. We just need to be more conscious of a boundary being set around it for everyone. And remembering that diversity within our day is so important. That spending too much time on anything isn't good. We need to exercise. Yeah, we need some screen time because that's part of life now, you know. Um, you can't limit it totally either because I think children are exposed to it. But you just want that diversity. And that's probably the key thing. And I suppose one of the key things for me is if you talk about imaginative play and role play and storytelling that kids mm-hmm. get involved in at a very young age. That's very important for language Mm. development and creativity, that part of the brain. Mm -hmm. If it's screen time, that doesn't really happen a whole lot. No, you need opportunities for different types of play, absolutely. Because also, you know, there's just so many wonderful ideas and creativity on technology that um, some children will get all of their ideas from that, whereas it's nice for them also, you know, You'd be putting on plays when we were younger. We used to love yeah. doing that. We'd have a whole show, we recorded, you know, doing it for everyone. And um, or like we'd love being just creative. I used to love doing hair and makeup and all of that. But I never had a video tutorial to follow. It was all coming from my own imagination of how I could do hair. So it is really important is that we allow that imaginative play. And oftentimes very interesting when you hear children doing 
imaginative play. They're often working out social situations that have happened during the day. So, you know, they'll be talking about the teacher getting out to someone or you can't play with us anymore. And you'll really hear that play coming out. And that is a way to deal with social, emotional skills, a way to deal with emotions without actually being present in that situation. So it actually forms the basis for lots of things, language development, creativity, but also a lot of social, emotional things come up through it as well. And I think this misperception sometimes um, around, you know, certain children don't enjoy imagination or don't do pretend play. Actually, most children, all children enjoy a level of pretend play. Yeah, they might like others involved in their imagination and their imaginative play, but most children like a level of it, whether it's smashing cars into each other or it's more elaborate imaginative stories in their head. But it's brilliant then from that kind of creativity point of view when they go to write a short story or, you know, free writing as they get older. So I think... For parents, it's not that they're doing something wrong. They're absolutely not. But I think it's important to remember the big picture that these these skills are in place for literacy, for creativity. Like if your child is on screens all the time, rather than getting too worried, I hate my parents, like, I should, I should, you know, I shouldn't have them on it. I should take them off it. Instead of doing that, just being like, I'm going to let them on the technology. You know? And afterwards, I'm going to set them up with something construction-based or something they enjoy because I know this might support them as they get older. And I think that's all you can do as a parent and not to be guilting yourself. I think that's so unhelpful. And I don't want parents to feel like that, that they're being guilted into it. It's more just being aware and and being responsible around that, is that if you know deep down that your child is spending too much time doing one particular thing, it's good to introduce that diversity. Yeah, very good. It's about getting the balance, It's about the balance, absolutely. We all have to watch for that. We do. You know, as adults, as teenagers, you're teaching life skills. I always talk to teenagers about that. It's it's about finding the balance because ultimately you're not going to be sitting over their shoulder getting them off video games. They will be moving out eventually and you need to set them up with the skills of knowing how to live a balanced lifestyle and not, if I'm not being watched, I'm going to sit here for 10 hours on a video game. So, you know, ultimately they're going to be an adult. So it's helpful to start practice now. Yeah, it is. I want to talk to you about, you have a lot of resources mm. um, uh, online that you, you use uh, to help and support parents. So I'd like to just talk to you about a few of those resources, mm. if you don't mind. So I saw that you have an online course called Down Syndrome and Occupational mm. Therapy. And we were just up in the Down Syndrome Centre recently and we spoke to a lovely lady, Joanne Hagerty, from the centre. And she gave us great information about what the centre does and how it supports people with Down syndrome and people with intellectual disability. So tell me a little bit about what the course does. How does it support parents, I should say, mm. and um, and their kids? So the course actually initially started off. I used to run um, a good few courses with Down syndrome core, which was targeted at parents, but also at teachers and preschool teachers. So I'm even currently running an early intervention one for parents. I found that the online workshops were really helpful because it gave parents a time that like maybe in the evening or a time that they had a moment yes. themselves that they could watch it so the webinars are for parents but they're actually also for teachers and I found that, that piece was really important because parents were constantly coming to me I'm trying to advocate so that the teacher understands my child and understands Down syndrome even if it is from a generalized perspective and I think a lot of schools you know, might have said this is the first child with Down syndrome that we've ever had in the school or that we've ever supported. So although every child is so unique, it is helpful to have a baseline, I think, for some teachers. So that's kind of where it came from. And it's a four-part series. So we go, I go through motor skills and, you know, independence, but also just practical, you know, use a strengths-based approach with children, especially children with Down syndrome. They've got great strengths. Some of the kids, you know, they have their sensory uh, preferences but they could be a seeker so they really love that messy player maybe they love that tactile you know so use that in their sensory breaks they could be a very visual child use that to their advantage maximize on the programs that are there for them so one thing that I, kind of throughout I suppose the work I do is emphasizing that strengths-based approach and that you know unfortunately because of reports needing to be given let's say to the Department of Education, it was deficit-driven, so it was constantly focusing on deficits, whereas really the essence of OT is a strength space, we're using a child's strengths, and that's particularly important for children with Down syndrome because I think sometimes schools can come to parents about behaviours. You know, there's this behaviour that we need to... 
And it's really thinking, we need to think about the why that might be. Like maybe this task is not the just right challenge for this child. This is too challenging. No wonder they don't want to do it and they're avoiding it. Or, you know, you're not catering for their environmental needs. They're trying to connect and seek with other children. No wonder they're poking or pulling at them because maybe they don't have the language to build those connections. So I think it is really important that that approach is taken. And that's why I put those courses up there. And I do a huge amount. I was doing a two-hour training today with SNAs and SET teachers. I do that a lot. I leave a lot of time in my diary because, honestly, I feel that's where the education piece is so important. Parents, but also SNAs, teachers, to inform them about how to support children and make it practical rather than overloading them with theory to actually say, this is what you can do. And that's what I try and get across in my courses is practical bits. You know, try this, try that, try going on the trampoline or these are fun ways to redirect a child or set up the environment or, you know, so I try and keep things as practical as possible. I think that suits people. Tell me a little bit about your Octobox. Mm. Yeah, what what was the process behind behind that? So Octobox, and yeah. this was the first of the kind of telehealth-based models, and this was the first thing that I started working on actually with my husband, Sean, as well. So his background is actually an electrician by trade, and then he moved into business, and so he had a startup, and then... Really, I suppose what we were looking at is how to scale occupational therapy. I work in private practice. I have for 10 years. The waiting lists are so long, not only in the public system, but now in the private system. And so I had loads of families getting in contact with me. And I just started to think about how would we make something that's a bit more scalable, but would target a specific area that I didn't feel needed as much intervention at times. So Octobox is um, a home program, technically that is delivered to a family's door and it's got enough activities in it to last a month and you've all the supplies within the box that you need to do those activities. So the whole box is custom designed and we have lots of different themes and it works on visual motor, fine motor, attention, problem solving and then we have WizKid projects inside it which are like used for executive functioning like how do I problem solve and build this and then they have to use it to play so it's all very purposeful and playful and then each of the activities has a video demonstration with it so I've done the video to go along with it um, and so they watch it at home and then they do the activities so we had actually like created that just before COVID right. so it was good timing for very you know good. families and schools a lot of them would have subscribed and it would have came to their door and they were able to work on those skills and we ran a pilot with HSE as well in Cork and they would have given it to a number of families on their waiting list and we got really positive feedback back from some of those families that actually they no longer needed to be on a waiting list because they were able to have a really good idea of how to support their child's fine motor skills at home so we were really looking for those kind of more scalable solutions with Octobox and and so I had two UCC OT students do research on it and had lovely research come out of it around Parents feeling really empowered to know what areas their child needed support, but also, I suppose, the flexibility of being able to do something in their own time and yes. work on it. Um, now, one of the barriers always is, I think, is time for parents. There was loads of activities in it, but I think it really showcased as well as giving families way too many activities to be doing within the month. It doesn't get done because what I was giving was four activities a week to have done and I think sometimes when they get OT reports or you get OT programs there's all these lengthy activities that they'll just never get done they'll never get no and I think Octobox was kind of the first of the moving towards what is now a huge shift towards telehealth Octobox technically is a telehealth based product because there's videos of me doing it COVID hit I moved straight on to online so I worked the whole way through the pandemic and would have done a huge amount of parent coaching with families that I work with that worked really well. And some of the teens and young adults that I work with, we've never gone back to face-to-face because they find it handy. I can jump on 45 minutes between yes. their homework and study. We don't have to travel. We can have a chat. We can stay connected. And that works really well um, for a lot of families. Um, and I suppose that kind of moved us into the space of creating Gabadoo and what that is now. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about mm. Gabadoo because it's it's that is it a telehealth platform, yeah. like a platform? Gabadoo was kind of what we I suppose had always wanted to move towards. So Gabadoo is a healthcare platform and um, 
which matches families and we connect them with therapists who've experienced in an area so that they can get individualized support within 72 hours. So we're really breaking down barriers in terms of waiting lists and also streamlining access to occupational therapists and speech and language therapists. We have a huge amount of information when it comes to child development in general. But what happens is we're put into a reactive role. So unless a child has a developmental delay or is already as identified as needing, let's say, therapy, then they're referred, they're on this waiting list. Whereas really a lot of parents often have that little instinctual feel that something needs a bit of support. So they go to their GP and their GP is like, I can put you on a waiting list. Or they go to the public health nurse, I'll put you on a waiting list. The solution really only is waiting list or private. And even for the private system, there's waiting lists. And parents can have that question mark. My child has a difficulty with their pencil grasp or I have a sensory concern. Do we need to have this initial assessment and, you know, go down this road? And for some families, there's still a stigma with that. So I think... We were really thinking about this as a child development platform. So how it works is we actually have 70 plus therapists onboarded, and that's a mixture of HSC and private therapists. So they're still within their own employment, but they use Gabadoo and support families as much as they can. And we have a wonderful cohort of therapists, so experienced, all registered, and I've onboarded every single therapist. And so we're really withholding ethos of strengths-based um family centered platform and so any family can come on they select the area that they would like focus around so it could be expressive language it could be emotional self-regulation it could be sensory processing they detail tons of information which we give loads of probing questions and they can attach videos and images and we blog posts to go along with it so they know what to do once they submit what we call a gabadoo we match them with all of the therapists who've experienced in that area and then only the therapist that selects it will see all the information. They do up what we call a GABA plan, which is individualized strategies, community organizations they should link in with. We have a partnership with Thinking Toys, so if there's a product that's relevant. And then we have a next steps section around guidance around their next GABA do. What to look out for, you know, what to observe at home. That parent coaching piece that we were talking yes. about, which is so important. And so that parent gets that within 72 hours. They can ask the therapist a question about the plan and and they can also get continuous support from that therapist with that area. So they can continue Gabadoo, it's called, which means they'll be linked with that therapist again. So it allows that collaborative relationship. And the continuity. And the continuity. And look, we've tried to make it as affordable for families as possible. Our regular plan, which is one Gabadoo a month, which is basically like a month, is 39 a month. And that's actually... Uh, families, if they have occupational therapy or speech language therapy covered in their health insurance, can claim that back. So some families are getting support for as little as nine or ten euro, and we're really trying to make that link with organisations. Um, yes. And we have a, GAB, a give a Gabadoo initiative, which is uh, our therapists do one free Gabadoo a month, and then we donate that to organisations who can't afford it. So we're really trying to make this, um, you know, as accessible as possible for families. And is there any age? that you begin at or end at yeah so we do zero to 23 that's the age group and like look we kind of see this going into older age groups as well and adults and we've done it up to 23 because i'm really passionate about that older teen young adult i feel like such a drop off of services for that age group and i do a lot of work that age group with down syndrome ireland and i just feel Sometimes that little bit of extra support, even around gross motor, fine motor, language is so helpful and supportive. So, yeah, from that perspective, like we're we're getting there. Obviously, we're a startup and we've only um, been publicly launched for a few months, but we're really trying to build visibility and awareness and trust for families. And I think word of mouth in in Ireland is very powerful. Very powerful. And so, families have had good experiences. We put testimonials up on the the website for anyone if they want to have a look on gabadoo.com just to kind of get a feel for what parents are saying and I also do a free webinar every Friday it's our Gabadoo Educate series so for any parents who are like I'd love to just learn a little bit about the child development topic if they go onto our website they can register and so I run it from one to half one but if they miss it the recording's available so like last um we did messy play independence I did handwriting all in the last month. So they're topics that a lot of parents are, you know, interested in. Very, very interested in. And it's all online, which is great. All yeah, online and all accessible. accessible. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant. Really innovative, <laughs> isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah but it's, uh, you know it's the concept so it makes total sense. Yeah, so. and actually where it came from was on my OT and me, which is my clinical practice, and that was the initial Facebook Instagram page I had. Tons of families were messaging me and sending me videos. And they were like, Could you look at this? Could you tell me? And I was saying to Sean, like, there's a lot I could say from that, but I can't get into this, you know, because like technically this isn't secure and and then we were thinking about how do we actually make this scalable? And the problem is, is that there aren't enough allied health professionals and we're a female dominated profession. And so where the gap in this is not employing all these full time therapists, it's allowing flexibility and remote working. That's what therapists are actually looking for. I could do a few hours here. I could do a few hours there. A lot of therapists have come back into the profession because of it. Maybe they're going to do PhDs. Maybe they've retired because the work is quite taxing. But this, they're like, oh, I can absolutely keep supporting families. So we're trying to use that retired knowledge for whatever reason that has happened to support the families who actually need it. And I think without looking at that scalability, it's not going to be possible. And that's why, obviously, a platform like this makes total sense for a public system as well that you have a dna you have a cancellation that you'd support someone who's on the waiting list but you know unfortunately things are slow when it comes to systems and it can be very frustrating for therapists i mean the majority of the hsc and nhs therapists that we've um, onboarded never asked about how much they'll be paid it's all about job satisfaction which is fascinating fascinating, yeah so they're always like i'm just doing this for like we've managers we've got people really high up positions that are just exhausted from not being able to do intervention, really. Yeah. And intervention is what we all love doing, isn't it? Absolutely. It's what we were trained to do. Assessment is not. Assessment is important. Yes, it is. But intervention is actually the bread and butter of who, and we butter are. of who we are. And, and it's the essence of actually what gives you job satisfaction because that's where the change happens. And Making so, a difference. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's just taking that totally away from therapists. And what is very dangerous also is it takes away a skill set. So you've got young therapists coming out. And so... I've talked to them about when they're filling out their GABA plan, they actually kind of have to do a little bit of unlearning because you're not writing a deficit. You're using a strengths-based approach to support a parent, to listen to a parent and coach them. And really, that is actually how we need to move forward. Yeah, that's excellent. Absolutely excellent. Okay, just in in a couple of final things, really. So we're coming to Christmas now, Jess, okay? (laughs) So um, if I was to ask you... You know, your top three toys for children yeah. to get from Santa now. That would be educational, obviously, mm-hmm. and OT relevant. What would those, what would you get the parents to ask or the kids to ask Santa for? Oh, oh, this is such a tricky one because I think, like, the very first thing I think with parents is, like, what's your child interested in or emotional? Obviously, when it comes to Christmas, you know, I think old school bike, like a bike is just still one of the best presents that can be gotten if this is something that a child's interested in. And it's outdoors and it's fun, you know, and it's just, it's so versatile. Um, and it's not just like a one trick, you know, it can last the whole year. Um, I think then like there's just certain things that kids always love, like any of the learning resources toys that I get. So Spike the Hedgehog is one that I use a lot. And kids absolutely love it. Like they So basically it's just a hedgehog. This would be for a younger child now. And he's got his spikes in him. Okay. And so you can take the spikes out, you can put them in. But kids just absolutely love it. And so especially if you're a younger child, you're always thinking about a toy that you can use in lots of different ways. So sometimes I hide spikes around the room and then they have to find them. I hide the spikes in therapy so they have to pull them out and get them. Maybe I have them rolling over a ball and putting the spikes in. So I like a toy that I can use in lots of different ways. Um, and I think that's a really nice one for like a baby or a toddler kind of toddler age group. If you've got a child who's who loves sensory, I think a large bean bag is so key. It's such a brilliant present, especially if it goes with like a small little indoor trampoline. I love that, like jumping from the trampoline and crashing onto the bean bag. You can do squishes on the bean bag. It's somewhere to chill, especially if you get like a really nice sensory bean bag one. There's just, um, yeah, they're, they're just like a really, really nice and comfortable. I, I, I'm going to be on the three now, but like therapy is something I use okay. a lot. 
It will be something that OTs use a lot. It's a resistive. It's like Play-Doh, but it's much more resistive. Um, you can get it from Thinking Toys. They have an unbelievable selection, of course, of toys as well. But it's very resistive. So if you have a child that loves that, like tactile, you know, like pulling and pushing, or you're trying to work on their fine motor skills but make it fun, that's a great one. You can hide beads in it and they have to pull it out and find it. I have a video on that on my YouTube channel, my TV, that parents can look at and play with it. So that's a really good one as well. There's There's brilliant new toys though there's brilliant construction toys even okay. they're just you know like open-ended toys are great something that you've got lovely like connect box or you know those magnets that there isn't really one way to play with them open-ended toys are great so you know you might be able to build this with it or change it up or build in another way or you could stack them or you could you know build them and that's nice toys that are kind of open-ended are great you get more longevity out of them sometimes as well like for younger kids I use toggles they're called a lot so the toggles you can stack them but you can also stack them when you turn them the opposite way and they all weigh different amounts so they roll different ways and they move different ways so for smallies they're such a lovely toy because they're so diverse so I think it is good to look at the quality of the toy you know and sometimes like even tk max it's in brilliant <coughs> toys you know they're really nice quality and i love wooden toys i think it like pretend oh them. pretend play wooden <coughs> toys and stuff are brilliant yeah. and they just get so forever. much yeah yeah they do so there's just so much but i do think think about what your child's interested in and just go with that for sure go with that yeah Tell me a little bit about where people can contact you now, Jess. So for any families that are looking for kind of immediate support, absolutely go on to gabadoo.com and you can get started there. We also offer free 10-minute support calls for families in case like, I don't really know where to get started. You can contact us and we can book you in for that. In terms of any of my courses, if you go on to myotme.com, you'll see the Down Syndrome course, but you'll also see I have a sensory, social and motor skills course really targeted SNAs you get 12 months access there's tons of videos there and you can work your way through it's very practical um and obviously Octobox is there as well but like you can contact me through my OTME you can contact me through Instagram as well on my OTME or a Gabadoo platform and um, and like obviously after this podcast if people have questions and they'd like to reach out please do on Instagram and I often share lots of like lives and webinars so I'm sure I'll discuss whatever has come up that's brilliant. <laughs> Jess, it's been, it's been brilliant to finally get to meet you and to sit down and talk to you. Um, it's been fascinating. You've opened my eyes completely in my occupation <laughs> therapists do on a day-to-day basis. Mm. So thank you so much for um, giving us the time today. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. And we'll get you back again, without a doubt, to talk about maybe in more detail one particular area. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Delighted. No, and I think that's the thing. Like, sometimes you just have to advocate for OT. I think a lot of people still don't really know what we do. So, um, no, it's brilliant. Thank you for having me on. Thanks so much to Jess for that amazing insight into occupational therapy. You can find more information about Jess and all the services she provides, including her new online platform, Gabadoo, at myotandme.com and gabadoo.com. And you can find us on Instagram at the Happy Baby Life. So until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.